strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And I just wanted to remind you guys, if you haven't already, to check out NotoriousNarratives.com, where you'll have a link to our Instagram, our Twitter, as well as our merch store and our Patreon. Um, For the patrons, we have early episodes every week, as well as additional and exclusive content, as well as ad-free content. So check that out if you're interested. And in our merch store, we have some fun, weird little little doodads. Most importantly, we have a really, really, really great thin hoodie that's pretty awesome and soft. So check that out if you get a chance. It's actually really soft. It's it's so soft. Also, we have a really awesome canvas tote bag that holds so, so, so much stuff. It's great if you just like bring a lot of stuff to work or you just, you know, take a bunch of stuff to the gym or wherever. It's just, it's a good carry-all. So some good stuff there. So if you have a couple minutes, uh, check that out. Uh, So tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the horrors of Andersonville. Like I said, this is the second part. This is part two. This is part two of my Civil War prisoner of war camps uh, stories. In the last episode, I talked about Camp Douglas, a Union prisoner of war camp where as many as 7,000 people died. Their deaths were caused by a myriad of illnesses, most of which were directly correlated to the overcrowding and poor sanitation within its walls. Camp Douglas was referred to as 80 acres of hell. In this episode, we will turn southeast to Camp Sumter, located in Georgia, about two hours south of Atlanta. And we're going to talk about the Andersonville Prisoner of War Camp, in which 13,000 souls perished. No relation to Fort Sumter? No relation. So Fort Sumter is outside of Charleston, South Mm -hmm. Carolina. This Camp Sumter and Andersonville is in Georgia. So just different areas. Sumter is the county that Andersonville is in. Um, So it's just a coincidence of the name. Just a coincidence, yeah. I was like, hold on. Was it named after the same person? Was it like, what's going on? No, I mean, it could very well be the same person that all of them are named after the, you know, in South Carolina as well as the camp, the county. Um, but the Camp Sumter, the prisoner of war camp, Andersonville, as it's affectionately referred to as, no relation. are named after the county that they're in, in Georgia, not South Carolina. If you're able, this might be a good time to just take a quick moment and do a quick Google search and just look at some of the photos that oh, you come Jesus up with. Christ. I don't say this lightly when I say that the prisoners were starved. They are so emaciated that you can see every everything, single everything. bone. It is not unlike the victims of death camps, internment camps, concentration camps. They're pretty brutal. So when you look, it just gives you an idea of sort of the gravity of what we're talking about. Oh, look at the grave sites. It, they're, they're tough to look at. Oh, no. um, you can see like the entirety of the kneecaps. The entirety of the pelvis, the sternum, um, I mean, every, every bone. But remember, prisoners of war were not a problem that either side of the conflict had anticipated, much less prepared for. Both sides staunchly believed that they were in the right and that the conflict would be over before it started. But that was not the case. So there was no plan 
with what to do with captured enemy combatants. There was no formal exchange system at the beginning of the war. Both armies instead paroled prisoners. Captured men were conditionally released on their oath of honor that they would not return to battle. But just because they did not return to battle did not mean that they were no longer soldiers. So it's a little tricky because they're still in the army, right? So they still have to be in the army and go to work. One job that they could do was to return to training camps and work there as non-combatants and help to run the camp and train new soldiers. But I wonder how many of them just went back to the battlefields, regardless of their oath that they made to the enemy. But the real issue with having no system in place was also that meant that there were no regulations and no plans were made to meet the basic human needs of the prisoners and no system of repercussion for poor treatment of these soldiers. In 1862, an exchange system was set up, but it was short-lived, lasting less than a year, and both sides found themselves overrun with tens of thousands of prisoners of war. Originally in the South, these captured Union soldiers were first housed in old warehouses and barns. As the number of soldiers increased, following the end of regular exchanges in 1863, camps were built specifically as prisons in three cities, in Florence, South Carolina, Millen, South Carolina, and Andersonville, Georgia. There were also a bunch of others. Those were kind of the three big bads. These camps were wooden stockades enclosing open fields. That means that the soldiers were not kept in buildings, but rather various other structures such as tents. In the North, officials converted federal camps of instruction into prisons, such as Camp Douglas that we talked about, that, you know, it was a place where people went to be trained Mm -hmm. and then they just kind of repurposed it in the south they didn't have such facilities because you have to remember that they weren't really a place or they didn't have access to army camps i saw that um the tents and that uh, meant that there were there was not a roof over their heads yeah some some had just we'll talk more about that it's just a piece of wood holding up like a blanket like yeah and that was really... really for the lucky ones so while camp douglas was supremely overcrowded, at least they actually had buildings to Mm -hmm. inhabit. At the time of the Civil War, the concept of a prisoner of war camp was still new. It was as of late 1863, when President Lincoln demanded a code of conduct be instituted to guarantee prisoners of war the entitlement to food and medical treatment, and to protect them from enslavement, torture, and murder. Andersonville did not provide its occupants with these guarantees, Therefore, the prisoners of Andersonville, without any sort of law enforcement or protection, functioned more closely to a primitive society than a civil one. As such, survival often depended on the strength of the prisoner's social network within the prison. A prisoner with friends inside Andersonville was more likely to survive than a lonesome prisoner. Social networks provided prisoners with food, clothes, shelter, moral support, trading opportunities, and protection against the other prisoners. God. It's like if you have more Facebook followers, you're more protected. Yeah. Fucking like... Popularity is always going to be important, I suppose. I suppose. One study found that a prisoner having a strong social network within Andersonville had a statistically significant positive effect on survival probability. Yeah. Um. So now to focus specifically on Andersonville. The prison commonly known as Andersonville was officially named Camp Sumter in honor of the county in which it was located. Construction of the camp began in 1864 after this 
after the decision was made to relocate Union prisoners to a more secure location. Like I said, they were staying at before that in like barns, warehouses, just wherever they had space. Eventually, they're like, you know, we should probably have like a little bit better place to keep them so we can keep them all in one place mm-hmm. and know where they are at all times. Camp Sumter was only in operation for 14 months. However, during that time, 45,000 Union soldiers were imprisoned there, and nearly 13,000 died from disease, poor sanitation, malnutrition, overcrowding, or exposure. In just how many months? 14? 14. 14 months. Holy shit. Like I said in the last episode, you are more likely to die in a camp than you were in battle during the Civil War. The prison site initially covered 16 and a half acres of land, which was enclosed by a 15-foot-high stockade wall. The prison was enlarged in 1864 to cover 26 and a half acres to compensate for overpopulation. About 19 feet inside that stockade wall was the deadline, which the prisoners were not allowed to cross. If a prisoner stepped over the deadline, the guards in the pigeon roosts, which were roughly 30 yards apart, were allowed to shoot them. The first prisoners arrived at Camp Sumter in late February of 1864. Over the course of the next four months, approximately 400 prisoners arrived daily. In June of 1864, over 26,000 prisoners were confined in a stockade designed to house only 10,000. The largest number of prisoners held at one time was 33,000 in August of 1864. The Confederate government was unable to provide the prisoners with adequate housing, food, clothing, and medical care. Due to the terrible conditions, prisoners suffered greatly and had a high mortality rate. For shelter, they created rough structures referred to as shebangs. They were improvised by prisoners and were known by many names. Shelters, huts, tents, blanket tents, and many others. Shelter, or lack thereof, was a defining part of the Andersonville experience. The Confederate quartermaster officer who was assigned to Andersonville was Captain Dick Winder, and he was ultimately responsible for providing the prisoners with shelter. Because of the location of the sawmills, the need for timber for railroads, bureaucratic red tape, inflation, and general incompetence, Winder was never able to successfully accomplish the task. Left to fend for themselves, the prisoners did the best that they could to build their own shelters with limited resources available to them. Prisoner diaries and memoirs document seven common types of shelters. One were huts made of split pine boards. There were other mud structures, like adobe-like structures that they created out of mud bricks and roofed with blankets, overcoats, or blouses. The most common were holes dug into the ground and then sideways so that they created small caves. Some created teepee-like structures by draping blankets over short vertical poles. There were crude lean-tos made by piecing together strips of cloth over a pole frame. And then the tents, which were made by attaching two blankets to a ridge pole. So pretty much any structure that you can imagine making out of fabric. Whatever's um, on you. Random. There wasn't very much wood, but the random wood that you could find. But it seems like the most common thing was to to go down into the ground. But you have to remember that central Georgia is uh, a, not a forgiving place during the summer. It's very hot. It's very humid. There are very bad storms. You you require shelter as a human from, you know, thunder, lightning. And even in the winter, it does become cold. So those who burrow down uh, seem to fend fairly well. Yeah, I was going to say because it's actually cold. It's like if 
mud yeah. is cold. So being in the ground, they as were long at least as it cool. Didn't, yeah. As long as it didn't fall down on them or like collapse. So during a bad storm, which was certainly a major concern. But um, if they dig dip, dig, many dig, died dip. from cave-ins. So while some were very ambitious and created these elaborate structures, there were more who were less ambitious or just lacked the resources. And they just used their hands to scoop out holes in the sand or clay. And there they bunked. And since they had no covering, they suffered from heat and exposure to rain. Three or four men could pull their resources to dig a hole about three feet deep and then scoop out the earth in right angles. Into these caves, they would crawl and be protected against the heat and the storm. But they were plagued with cave-ins, and several were smothered to death in their sleep. Private Robert Knox Sneeden, who survived his time at Andersonville, described the shelters as follows. Some had dug holes in the ground three or four feet deep and made a slanting roof over them of poles and pine-top boughs. The whole camp looked like a collection of pig pens. The men used overcoats, blankets, India rubber blankets, and pine boughs used to roof various structures. Other people used ripped clothing, such as t-shirts and shirts for lashing material. Some of the more inventive prisoners used hand-carved shovels that they had hardened by fire to dig their pits. During the war, 45,000 prisoners were received at Andersonville. Of those, like I said, 13,000 died. The nature and causes of deaths are a continuing source of controversy among historians. Some contend that the deaths resulted from deliberate Confederate war crimes against Union prisoners, while others state that they resulted from disease promoted by overcrowding, the food shortage in the Confederate states, and the prison officials' incompetence, as well as the breakdown in the prisoner exchange system. During the war, disease was the primary cause of death for both armies which suggests that infectious disease was a chronic problem due to poor sanitation in regular as well as prison camps. So like we mentioned in the Camp Douglas episode, just your regular, not even a prisoner of war camp, you still had a higher risk of dying of some sort of communicable disease Mm -hmm. or some sort of environmentally uh, contracted disease Mm -hmm. related to overcrowding and poor sanitation than you had an actual risk of dying on a battlefield during the Civil War. So that was, you know, certainly the case. But because this took place in southern states and the South were the loser, the Confederacy lost. So a a different viewpoint kind of came around. They kind of took the So no one had food. Oh. And no one had money. So the very last people who were going to be taken care of were the prisoners of war. So I think it's important to just remember that – During the Civil War, the Confederacy was pretty dependent upon resources that were traded from um, the Union states. And when those things weren't traded to them, supplies became very limited very quickly. And with all of the men off fighting, a lot of, you know, crops were neglected. The, The small amount of manufacturing that took place in the South was neglected. So supplies were just limited. Um, for everyone and when it came to the supplies that they had people were not concerned with giving them to the prisoners of war first it was certainly the last people that they thought of and I mean that took place at Camp Douglas as well you know because you'll find you'll see later when it comes to some of the 
legal ramifications that take place during this particular story. It feels particularly, um, put it this way, no one went to trial at Camp Douglas. Oh. But they won, right? So back to the rampant disease at Andersonville. The only source of water at Andersonville was a stretch of the Sweetwater Creek that ran through the prison yard. Prisoners used this as their drinking water, as well as a place to deposit their waste. Prisoners were forced to bathe in the foul stink. Many died of dysentery. The register of prisoners who died at Andersonville Prison included a great deal of information on each individual who perished. Name, rank, unit, date of death, and cause of death. You must remember that these causes of death may have been easily remedied with proper medical care and sanitation. But lacking those resources, and also many of these are easily understood today, but were a little bit more mystifying during the 1860s. So I'll list a few of the causes of death. One was abscess, which I think we all know. A localized formation of pus somewhere in the body. Yes, yes, move on. on. Yeah. Asphyxia, loss of consciousness and death due to suffocation or inadequate oxygen. Constipation. Ooh. Diarrhea. Ooh. Diphtheria. What? Yeah. So diphtheria is when you get your tetanus shot, you get a shot called the Tdap, and that is the uh, tetanus, diphtheria, and Mm -hmm. pertussis. So diphtheria was a very highly contagious disease characterized by abdominal pain and intense diarrhea. Oh. And so the thing with like diarrhea, cholera, dysentery, mm-hmm. um, all these diseases that cause you to have immense amounts of diarrhea, they cause you to become incredibly dehydrated. And in becoming very dehydrated, you lose a lot of electrolytes and potassium. And that's yeah. what all the muscles in your body work on, especially your heart. Yeah, and then the only water source you have just ends up being it's full like of poop. the same poo. Yeah. Right. Um, so then well just drink your own poo. Yeah. People died of hemorrhoids. People died of hepatitis. People died of icterus, which is uh, becoming like jaundiced yellow from liver disease. People died of nephritis, which is kidney disease. I'm assuming basically, you know, people who are in these acute stages of all these various illnesses would become septic and eventually their kidneys would shut down. Smallpox, tonsillitis, typhoid. There's a whole myriad of lists, but a lot of these were very treatable illnesses. If there had been clean water and probably housing, I think would have been two huge factors that could have saved, I would say over half of the lives inside Andersonville. So simple. Just a roof over their head and just some water. Just yeah, clean so... water. Yeah. Clean water is really the linchpin of society. Yeah. Um, it is the most basic human need. It is the thing that you will live with the le- live without the least amount of time. Mm-hmm. So, and if you are taking in water that is not potable, that is not drinkable and has various bacteria, parasites, you know, different organisms living in it you will become incredibly ill and without treatment you will die it's a little a little story from a person who was there sergeant samuel corthel company c fourth massachusetts cavalry remembered the camp was covered with vermin all over you could not sit down anywhere you might go and pick all of the lice off of you and then sit down for half a moment and get up and you would be covered with them again 
In between these two hills, it was very swampy, all black mud, and where the filth was emptied, it was all alive. There was a regular buzz there all the time, and it was covered with large white maggots. Oh, no. The close quarters and desperate conditions led to theft and violence. Gangs formed, chief among them the Andersonville Raiders, a marauding group who attacked their fellow prisoners with clubs and knives to steal their food and clothing. But as one gang starts, there will always be a second gang. And another group started up, organized by Peter, Big Pete Aubrey, to stop the larceny. And they called themselves the Regulators. Big Pete. Big Pete. They caught nearly all of the Raiders, who were tried by the Regulators' judge, Peter McCullough, and jury, which was selected from the prisoners. This jury, upon finding the Raiders guilty, set punishment that included running the gauntlet, being sent to the stocks, there's a gauntlet? Ball and chain, and in six cases, hanging. So they actually allowed their own justice system to take over. So the gauntlet was actually not what you think of as gauntlet, which is probably like a series of tasks. Medieval times Robin Hood kind of bullshit, yeah. <laughs> no, the gauntlet here was where they would run back and forth between a couple of prisoners and be beaten. Uh. They would go to one, get beaten, come back to the other, get beaten, like a ping pong ball, and just get beaten. The conditions within the prison were so poor that in July of 1864, Captain Wars paroled five Union soldiers. So Captain Morris will come up again later. He's the man who's in charge of Andersonville. So he actually paroled five soldiers to deliver a petition signed by the majority of Andersonville's prisoners asking that the Union reinstate prisoner exchanges in order to relieve the overcrowding and allow prisoners to leave these terrible conditions. The request was denied. The Union soldiers, who had sworn to do so, returned to report this to their comrades. So... Basically, the Confederacy begged yeah, to please take them off our hands. We cannot, we can't deal with it. Like, we cannot feed them. We cannot clothe them. We cannot take care of them. And the Union refused to do prisoner exchanges, didn't care enough about their prisoners either, back and forth, mm-hmm. um, to take them back. There was another point when the Confederacy was like, hey, we will just let you have them. We don't even care about getting our people back if you just send boats to pick them up. Take them. And the Union refused to send boats to pick up. And it's kind of like so like today. Today we're Oh here it is. It's here kind of again. like we don't we don't negotiate with uh with um You don't neco- negotiate with terrorists. Terrorists or any type of abduction. But it wasn't an abduction, right? No, no, but I'm saying that it's kind of like but the same now, thing. It's like no, we don't want no. But now you would a- we would absolutely. Yeah. Um we always um will make those accommodations for prisoners of war now and make prisoners of war, yeah. These are prisoners of war. Um, the Union had prisoners of war. But they just refused to take them. And they just, wow. it just was a bad, bad scene. Like I said, also, this, was like, this well, wasn't planned for. They just didn't have, there was no framework. Yeah. And then also, I guess they're thinking, what are they going to do with 45,000 people? Let them go home? Yeah. In the autumn of 1864, after the capture of Atlanta, all of the prisoners who were well enough to be moved were sent to Millen, Georgia, and Florence, South Carolina. At Millen, better arrangements prevailed. After General William Tecumseh Sherman began his march to the sea, the prisoners were returned to Andersonville. So 
as Sherman kind of marched through Atlanta, they moved the prisoners off to the other camps. And then as Sherman moved on, they moved them back. Long and the short of that story. A young Union prisoner named Dorrance Atwater was chosen to record the names and numbers of the dead at Andersonville for use by the Confederacy and the federal government after the war ended. He believed correctly that the federal government would never see the list. Therefore, though he sat next to Henry Wurz, who was in charge of the prison, uh, he secretly kept his own list among other papers. When Atwater was released, he put the list in his bag and took it through the lines without being caught. It was published in the New York Tribune when Horace Greeley, the paper's owner, learned that the federal government had refused the list and given Atwater much grief. So even this person who smuggled this list of names out Mm -hmm. to be like, hey, this is what's going on there. Union Army wanted none of it. And it took a newspaper reporter to actually bring like it into the light. It was Atwater's opinion that Andersonville's commanding officer was trying to ensure that Union prisoners would be rendered unfit to fight if they survived. Planning an escape from this camp was routine among the thousands of prisoners. Most men formed units to burrow out of the camp using tunnels. The locations of the tunnels would aim towards nearby forests, only 50 feet from the walls. But once out, escape was nearly impossible due to the poor health of the prisoners. Prisoners caught trying to escape were denied rations, chain-ganged, or killed. Playing dead was another method of escape. The death rate of the camp, being around 100 per day, made disposing of bodies a relaxed procedure by the guards. 100 per day? It was only open for 14 months and 13,000 people died. I know. Prisoners would pretend to be dead and carried out to the row of dead bodies outside the walls. As soon as night fell, the men would get up and run. Once, Wurz learned of this practice, and he ordered an examination by surgeons of all of the bodies taken out of the camp. You know, at one point, they asked for the Union to take them. At this point, just let them escape. It's, it's not your problem anymore, and they're not really guaranteed to survive anyway. Just give them an option. To, like, I think the real leave. problem just, just go. Just is go. that they're still in an army. There's still a hierarchy. They are, they are trying so hard and working their last breath, literally, to dig a tunnel, to fight, to pretend to be dead, to all these things just kind of go outside of that wall. And if you want to get rid of them so badly, just let them fucking go. Yeah. I just think that if they were able to make that deal... Um, this gentleman who's in charge of the camp mm-hmm. would have been doing the right thing. But if he just lets them escape, then he has to answer to his superiors about where they're going. Oh, oh my God. Oh, sorry. They got, yeah. They got past that one guy. Sorry. So Confederate records show that 351 prisoners escaped, though many were recaptured. The Union Army lists 32 of those names as returning to the Union lines. Of the rest, some likely simply returned to civilian life without notifying the military, while others probably died. When General Sherman's Union forces occupied Atlanta on September 2nd, 1864, moving the Federal Cavalry within easy striking distance of Andersonville, the Confederate Army moved most of the prisoners to other camps. From then until May of 1865, Andersonville was operated on a smaller basis than before. Andersonville Prison ceased operation in May of 1865. 
most former prisoners returned to their pre-war occupations. But as with any tragedy, especially for those on the losing side, someone must pay the price. The man in charge of Andersonville was named Henry Wurst. He had been made commander of Andersonville because of his rank, but had been massively injured so he could not continue to be on the battlefield. When the war ended, he was arrested and charged with murder in violation of the laws of war because of the deplorable conditions at Andersonville. He was tried by military tribunal. As witnesses came and testified to the wretched conditions that they were forced to live in during their captivity. Many testified to specific acts of cruelty committed by Wurz, but many of those are unsubstantiated and often, during those times that they claim, he was actually not present at the camp. The court also considered official correspondence from captured Confederate records. Perhaps the most damaging was a letter from a Confederate surgeon general named Dr. James Jones, who in 1864 was sent by Richmond to investigate conditions at Camp Sumter. Jones had been appalled by what he found and reported he vomited twice and contracted influenza from the single hour that he had toured the camp. His graphically detailed report to his superiors all but closed the case for the prosecution. Wurz presented evidence that he had pleaded with Confederate authorities to try to get more food and that he had tried to improve the conditions for the prisoners inside. It became clear which way the wind was blowing, and it was not in his favor. And at this point, the Union Army presented Wurz with an offer. They offered that if he could implicate Jefferson Davis in the treatment of the prisoners at Andersonville, that he could escape the death penalty. He refused them. He was not a man to play games. He had already told them that he knew nothing that would implicate President Jefferson Davis in the calamity that was Andersonville. But they kept pressing him, thinking that he would crack, thinking that he would bear false witness in order to save his own skin. He would not. Wurz was hanged on November 10, 1865. His neck didn't break in the fall, and he writhed and suffocated at the end of the rope, his hands tied behind his back. The crowd of 250 people cheered at first, but grew somber as the grisly ordeal played out. It was much like Andersonville itself, needless suffering that seemed to drag on and on. At last, his body shuddered and went limp. Wurz was the only Confederate official to be tried and convicted of war crimes resulting from the Civil War. The revelation of the prisoners' sufferings was one of the factors that shaped public opinion in the North regarding the South after the close of the Civil War. In July and August of 1865, an expedition of laborers, soldiers, and soldiers, accompanied by former prisoner Dorrance Atwater, the man who had escaped mm -hmm. the list, and Clara Barton, um, who helped to found the Red Cross, went to Andersonville to identify and mark the graves of the Union dead and transform the place into the Andersonville National Cemetery. Like I said, Atwater had made his own copy of the death record, and he had always done so in hopes uh, that he would be able to notify the relatives of the over 12,000 dead interred there. It was thanks to his list that the and and sorry, it was thanks to his list and the Confederate records confiscated at the end of the war that only 460 of those 13,000 graves are marked as unknown soldier. As a national cemetery, it is also used as a burial place for more recent veterans and their dependents. Visitors can walk the 26.5 acre site of Camp Sumter, which has been outlined with a double row of white posts. The National Prisoner of War Museum opened in 1998 as a memorial to all prisoners of war. Exhibits use art, photographs, 
displays, and video representations to depict the capture, living conditions, hardships, and experiences of American prisoners of war during all periods. The museum also serves as the park's visitor center. There are a few experiences that I can think of that are more dehumanizing, depressing, and cruel than that of being a prisoner of war. For as long as man has taken up arms in conflict, the management of those captured has been an issue. The humiliation and suffering experienced by these men is beyond the boundaries of what you believe a human can endure. Sleeping in a hole in the earth, unclothed, drinking water that contains the feces of thousands, and having no food to speak of, your daily existence a continued irritation to your captors. Every breath you take an act of defiance. The Andersonville National Cemetery is the final resting place for the Union prisoners who died while being held at Andersonville as prisoners of war. There, the 13,714 graves are lined in perfect rows, stretching as far as the eye can see. An alarming reminder of what men can do to each other when the goal is only victory, not humanity. That is the story of the deadliest ground in the Civil War, Andersonville, Georgia. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.